just when we thought we could get out. They pull us back into the Acquisition Wars. And boy, do we have a topic to talk about for what I'm guessing now, based on my calculations, the season finale, quote-unquote, for the Dark Spider cast. That is episode 10 of season 2. I honestly cannot believe I've already done 20 episodes of this thing. I remember the first episode was the Shang-Chi, I'm sorry, review back in September. So... The math is mildly adding up, you know, 10 weeks, so, I mean, I'm sorry, no, 10, 10 weeks for the first season, 10 weeks for the second, and there's that week uh, break, which I took in between the first two seasons, and I'm about to take another one right now, so hopefully nothing huge like this week's piece of news, uh, grand, you know, talk of the town as far as the gaming industry, or entertainment industry as a whole, and as well as the ones from, like, a couple of weeks ago with Microsoft buying Activision doesn't happen in that time. But if it does, then at least we have a Hail Mary to talk about for the Season 3 opener. And also, hopefully by then, I'll change my music. Because I've been meaning to change the music for some time, the opening and closing music. So hopefully Season 3, you know, just like TV shows do, where they stop using a particular title sequence or a song. And then they kind of utilize a different one for the new season to kind of illustrate growth of the characters or growth of the show. I'm kind of w wishing for the, the, the Dark Spider cast to kind of take a similar approach. So hopefully we can focus on something similar to that vein. But welcome, guys. We definitely have a lot on this, the itinerary here to talk about as far as things in the gaming and the movie industry and kind of an algamation of all those things together as far as video game adaptions within television. Um, it's not going to be a very lengthy discourse as far as that's concerned. Uh, but we'll get to that. In the meantime, this is the intro segment. Welcome, guys, to, again, like this, like I said, the finale for Season 2. And so far, an update on the job. It's pretty much feeling like an internship, but in a good way, in a way where I'm like, all right, this is definitely is going to, it could definitely be transformative into a job. But as far as the approach, it really is feeling like we're taking classes, we're having some assignments that kind of feel like homework, but... Again, not in a bad way, in a way that feels like, all right, you know, I, I got a handle on this. In fact, there's an assignment due on Friday, and I'm already done. I actually, I was done yesterday. I was, I was, uh, I was done yesterday, and then even by Sunday or Monday, I was already half done as far as the conception and the brainstorming that was in this, and the research that was required. And then yesterday, I finally put it to a Photoshop um, document, and then uh, by the end of yesterday, I was wrapped up. So there you have that. Uh, as far as, just like I said, everything that we're kind of tackling as far as information overload, uh, it is a little bit overwhelming to take in, but it is helpful to know that even the, the people at up top, as far as project managers and, and, and people that we report to, and then we need to look to as far as information, even they're like, yeah, we know that this is a lot. And that's why this whole residency is a whole three months, because later on, it's going to start to be broken down into funnels and broken down into subsidiaries where it's going to make a little bit more sense especially when a context is added as far as who we're working with and what we're working on and what we're you know what kind of vital information as content creators we're given so that as content creators we can then generate that content so looking forward to it you know a lot of things to look forward to like i said the only so far the major th the biggest quote-unquote complaint that I can think of is just having to wake up early, but it does have its benefits. I can sneak in more food into my dietary habits. I can um, get more work done as far as what I can kind of like melt together and uh, can't complain. Can't complain whatsoever, but really, and I'm looking forward to it. But aside from that, 
just a handful of different things that I'm also trying to tackle right now. And it's funny because though we have these really extensive piece of news to talk about as we kind of work our way down this itinerary, I also had to wake up as of Wednesday to some uh, bumming news, to some really disappointing news um, as a gamer. Like this really struck me as a gamer. Like Wednesday was definitely not the day to be a gamer uh, waking up that morning because two things were put out there in the ether. One was early reviews for Dying Light 2. And I guess I could also use this as a brief moment to talk about Dying Light 2. What my plan is to tackle Dying Light 2 as the gargantuan month that is February just unfolds here and empties our wallets because February is loaded. Of course, the usual suspects that everybody kind of throws around right now is Dying Light 2. A couple of days, a few days later, about four days later, February 8th, we got Sifu. And then 10 days after that, we got uh, Horizon 2 Forbidden West. At the end of the month, we got Elden Ring, and then a couple, and then uh, it's not until March. So I would honestly say that's pretty much the beef of February. And I think there's a, a one or two other games that are very niche, but I know some people are looking forward to. But that's really the bulk of it, as far as big name games, AAA name games, name drops are coming here in the short month of February. Ironically, the shortest month has the biggest, some of the biggest confirmed releases, but. Here's the thing. One of those releases is sadly, I don't. I also feel just a little weird saying words like sadly and disappointingly because technically it's still good reviews, just not the reviews we were expecting. But Dying Light Two reviews have gone up, and I haven't exactly like read or watched any of them as far as very as far as the more concrete details of what makes the game and what doesn't work for the game. But so far, it's ranging at a seventy-seven percent on Metacritic. IGN and GameSpot and a couple of other sites have been giving it like 7s out of 10s, a couple of 8 out of 10s, but mostly 7s. There might be 1 or 2 6s in there as well. And the overall consensus that I've heard from everybody is that it's it's got great parkour and great gameplay as far as combating the the varied zombies and exploring the world and the traversal with the parkour across that world. But two things stand out as far as humongous detriments to the game. One of which is, unfortunately, cannot be fixed via any patches. In fact, IGN, I'm paraphrasing here, but IGN would say that no patch can fix the boring story and the mediocre protagonist that you play as, even after 80 hours. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, well, that was actually kind of the case with the first Dying Lights, but the gameplay was still pretty pretty solid and pretty fun so it's it, that's kind of repeating in and of itself but at the same time that can't be an entirely bad thing what does become a little questionable is the inclusion is the fact that every reviewer every of every one of these publishing sites big major publishing sites that got early review copies of the game as well as influencers on YouTube have been dealt with a incredibly buggy mess. Uh, one of the things that is mentioned in almost every single re- review to some capacity is how buggy and glitchy the game is to the point where, it, you know, it's one thing to have like the fun, quote-unquote, charming bugs that Bethesda was known for, but apparently this is more so on the side of cyberpunk levels of buggy where the game has actually been crashing, not just on PC, but also consoles, both PlayStation and Xbox alike, that some audio files are not loading up, so sometimes characters open their mouths and they're not talking. That, to me, is a big one. 
It's a th it's something for crashes to happen because then as long as the checkpoint system has been kind of generous, then at least you can load up the game from where you left off and hopefully, cross your fingers, you don't have to replay it too much. But it's also another thing for the immersion of the game to break in and of itself if a character can't speak or a character's not there at all, but other characters are recognizing as that character being there. And if that's really how it's going to go down come February 4th, that's going to be an issue. I mean, but here's the thing. Two things. I wasn't planning on playing it February 4th. I wasn't planning on playing Dying Light 2 Day 1. If earlier in the in last year, to be honest, not even this year, but like mid to late last year, I was all gun ho for playing Dying Light 2 up until they started mentioning how long it was going to take to either beat the main story, beat the main story with some side content, or complete the story at the whopping 500 hours, which we've covered in a past po podcast. But thinking of how much I want to take my time with this game and with it, it, honestly, it really boils down to Horizon 2. If Horizon 2 was not coming out two weeks later, I would probably have said, yeah, day one on Dying Light 2. But being that, that that Horizon 2, which to me takes just a little bit more priority over cyber uh, over i'm so sorry over dying light 2 then that's where i was like i'm gonna have to go ahead and wait on this and now it's sounding like that's probably the best course to take due to these bugs because techland themselves on twitter sent out a message to people who have gotten a retail copy a physical retail copy of dying light 2 that unfortunately have been have broken street dates so some retailers out there have broken street dates and have let out copies physical copies of Dying Light 2 prior to its very fourth release and apparently uh, Techland put out a tweet saying hey please don't play it because playing it on day one very fourth is the optimal way to pay because play because there's a day one patch coming out that's going to fix an awful lot of bugs and glitches I think at one point it was documented that it was going to fix over a thousand glitches. And this, this thing is going to be like over five gigabytes big. And it's a day one patch. So that begs the question. Are we really... Is this going to be almost an entirely different game on February 4th for general consumers than what reviewers were dealt with for the sake of the review? And is this ethical or not? Because it is a little sussy. It, it's and to the point where it's reminding me sadly of cyberpunk you know it's reminding me of how cyberpunk was also trying to like censor out influencers out there from telling people how the game really was and how the re re review embargoes were kind of sketchy and oh man i really do not want dying light 2 to go the way of cyberpunk but uh let's hope that that day one patch really does fix the game in a very um significant sense otherwise this the that gargantuan delay that they pushed themselves forth was for not because Dying Light 2 was a case where that it was a game that was supposed to come out last year and then they were like we're delaying it indefinitely until they finally settled on the February 4th release date for 2022 uh, prior to that however they went dark for a really long time what exactly was going on behind those doors if really the review copy was going to be dealt this way so a lot of ethical questions are kind of put forth as far as how Dying Light 2 is being perceived right now and it's and the optics are not look, looking too great. Even if that day one patch on Friday really does polish the game to a, a shine, it, it it's still gonna leave that first impression that you can't get back. You know, there's no such thing as a second first impression, as they say. And I'm a little worried that 
it's going to be Cyberpunk all over again. We'll see. Only time will tell. But for now, it is getting a lot of 7s and, and, and out of 10s and 6s out of 10s. A couple of 8s here and there. Um, needless to say that though they, these are still on the category of favoring the game. Especially with, like I said, that 77% Metacritic score. It is uh, it's still kind of disappointing. Because I was hoping for some slight Game of the Year accolades for one of the biggest opening titles of 2022 thus far so waking up to that was a bummer it was also becoming ever more so frustrating to get through wednesday as we learned that suicide squad killed the justice league has been delayed to 2023 or reportedly we have to add the word reportedly in there because uh, uh rocksteady themselves have not confirmed it but this was from jason schreier or working over at bloomberg it's kind of a reliable source. He's hardly he's like ninety ninety to ninety five percent right most of the time. So I, I think at this point, it's so much so that every website, IGN, Gamespot, picked it up and said, "Yeah, it's getting delayed. How can it not?" And it, it's funny because a lot of people are using the reasoning that, "Oh yeah, this with Gotham Knights and Hogwarts Legacy. How can they release three? How can Warner Brothers release three games in one year? But at the same time, it's three different developers. That doesn't have anything to to do with it." My guess is that the game was once again still not finished, still buggy, and I'm not going. I'm not saying that this was is the case or this is what was happening, but. I would not rule out the possibility that the Dying Light 2 reviews coming out today after that significant delay and now people, you know, reviewers are coming forward saying, yeah, this thing is still buggy as hell. What happened? Scared Rocksteady into thinking, yeah, Cyberpunk and now even Techland, who a lot of people were looking forward to with Dying Light 2. Yeah, let, let's go ahead and push push that off. Now, officially, if you want to get official, this is technically Suicide Squad kills the Justice League's first delay because from the get-go, it always had a 2022 release window. They never boiled down a month or window for the year. Like, they never said summer. They never said fall. So I was thinking to myself, okay, that was smart because if they ever delayed it, it would feel like, okay, it was going to be holiday. Now they can say spring 2023. So it's only a couple of months. Or, or early 2023. Now it looks like stay staying away from giving us a proper window paid off because we're getting that delayed and now we are, we're only getting one DC, well, not necessarily DC Universe, but DC centric uh, video game in this year because Warner Brothers is just insisting on releasing Gotham Knights and uh, the Hogwarts Legacy game this year. We'll see, because one just bit the dust, and with Dying Light 2's reception, we can expect some more delays. I honestly humbly believe that any game right now that does not have a concrete date within the next couple of months is up for grabs, or rather on the chopping block, to get pushed out to 2023. Which sounds disappointing at first, but frankly, there's already a, a list on my Google Keeps uh, application that has all the games for 2022 that I have on my radar, and it's actually quite a, a chunky list. So if we can minimize on that so I can work on my backlog, that's all well and good for me. Now, if I wanted to feel a little bit more perplexed as a gamer and just overall 
entertainment enthusiast, we've got a trailer for the Halo TV show that's going to be debuting on Paramount+. Plus. I watched it. This is not going to be a reaction, obviously, because it's in the podcast format, but just a breakdown of what I saw. It's it's a mixed bag. It really is a mixed bag because I watched the trailer, and it, there, I understand that they're taking a different approach from the games. Um, it's an approach that fits a bit more for lack of a better term, rudimentary into a TV show style template. Because obviously, as playing Master Chief in the games, it has to be a bit more immersive, it has to be a bit more centric on him. Whereas here, Master Chief is kind of like an anchor point for the story and it involves all these other characters from who I believe is Dr. Halsey in there. You do have a blonde woman in a lab coat, so I was thinking immediately, oh, that's got to be Dr. Halsey. Um, then we have a couple of other characters that I don't know the names of, and I believe they are meant to be original characters. One of them is played by a character actor that I really like, uh, Bokeem Woodbine. Um, so I'm looking forward to, uh, or I'm interested, rather, not really looking forward to, but interested in what they bring to the table. As far as aesthetics, Master Chief himself looks cool. Like, the suit looks very faithful, while at the same time gritty for the reality of a, t- of a, TV, a live-action TV show. And it, some shots of the Covenants, uh, like there's one character in there that kind of looks like the Arbiter, but I know where it's not the Arbiter. He looks a bit more sinister. So a couple of shots of the Covenant don't look too bad. But then there's other shots that just look a little too green screeny, a little like I remember not so long ago. I think it was Bob Wolf of the Wolf Den show or no, I, I actually I don't think it was Bob Wolf. I think it was his brother Will on the Wolf Den podcast says that it looks like a TV show, but in a bad way. Because TV shows really have transcended into a new um, into a new era where they are the movie quality TV shows. You know, you watch almost any show right now on a streaming platform like Peacemaker for HBO Max or The Mandalorian or Book of Boba Fett on Disney Plus, and they have like the sh- you know you may not like the quality of the you might differ on the quality of the writing or the characters or you might vibe with one thing or another, but. Almost everybody across the board agrees that the actual presentation of the show feels much higher quality than you would expect something like The Flash uh, be on CW. And sadly, this feels a little bit more on the side of something on the CW where you're like, yeah, this feels like a TV show. This feels like it's got that TV budget on some shots. Some other shots, it looks like, like I said, they're playing favorites. Like everything goes towards the Master Chief and the Covenant, but then everybody else, including some of the set dressing, looks a little on the more to be desired sort of angle. So other than that, everything else, like I said, it feels like a mixed bag. There's some things I can take. There's some others that I can't like. Again, some of that quality feeling of the budget. And that also gets reflected on Cortana. We have our first look at Cortana, who's played by the actual actor. I can't remember her name, but the actress who played Cortana in the game. So the voice is there. You know, hello, Master Chief. You know, she's got that twing. And that's cool and all. And it feeds into the nostalgia of people who grew up with Halo. But I, I gotta be honest, I kind of wish that they would recast. Because they recast a Master Chief. You know, he's played by a different actor. And at first, I thought that when they cast him, I thought that they were going to do a Darth Vader sort of thing where he was going to be the body and then they were going to have Steven Downs coming back as the voice. But no, he speaks in the trailer and that's most definitely not Steven Downs. Thankfully, I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at the voice that they got for him because he sounds cool. And like I said, the fact that they're going in a different direction as far as storytelling is uh, perceived 
I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, that that's going to be the natural direction, and I can't be mad at it. I, You know, it doesn't trigger me. Now, granted, it might be because I also don't have that much of a um, stake in the series because I wasn't there from day one. I only started playing the Halo games from 2015 when I finally got an Xbox One, and I got the Master Chief Collection. So, I may not be as fired up as some other people might have from watching that trailer. Who knows? I have yet to talk to other people. But even... With that bearing in mind, the recasting of Master Chief actually did not bother me. I was like, you know what? It doesn't sound like Stephen Downs, but Stephen Downs is already starting to sound a little too gravelly. I don't know if he's been smoking a few too many cigars, but after playing Halo Infinite, there's times where it sounds like his voice is deteriorating over to over time. Whereas, you know, Master Chief himself is, you know, jumping all over like a spry chicken in that game. So, getting a different, much younger sounding voice, but still fits uh, the bill for someone like Master Chief, it actually felt not too bad in the trailer. I was actually kind of down with it. I was not down with the same actress playing Cortana, because it's one thing for her to voice Cortana spectacularly in the games. It's another for her to wear a Party City outfit in that fucking trailer. <laughs> I'm sorry, the way she looks, she looks horrible. Uh, I gotta be honest. She might sound good, but she looks horrible with the wig and the and the outfit. Like, people are like, she's not blue. I'm, I'm like, to me, it doesn't really matter that she's not blue. She, the blue, I can, don't, you know, give or take, but just the overall aesthetic of uh, how she looks, I'm like, two things needed to happen. Either recast with a completely different actress, that fits the bill of Cortana a little bit better, while at the same time maybe having a similar sounding voice to how she sounds in the games, or have the actress be the voice for an all-CG Cortana. This She's an AI hologram. This is one of the few cases where her being all-CG, you know, a photorealistic CG representation of a human Cortana would have been okay, because she's a hologram to begin with. She's an AI. So I understand maybe it's because of what I just mentioned about the budget showing from time to time that maybe they couldn't do that. So they figured, all right, just slap a Party City outfit on her. It'll be fine. And that's ultimately what we ended up with. And, yeah, it's not looking too great on that trailer. Everything else, like I said, it's a mixed bag. There's some things I like, some things I don't like. But all we can really do now is just wait. Whether or not it's a Paramount Plus seller, I don't know because there's barely anything else on that streaming service that's really worthwhile so when halo comes sure there's that and there's star trek discovery but other than that is it really worth it am i gonna have to convince someone to you know get a subscription and let me have their password i don't know for now i'll just keep it on my radar and look out for the reviews to see what they say now on to what I've been playing because I'm dying to get to some of these news uh, that have been breaking. <laughs> Frankly, though, this is going to be a quick segment because honestly, honest to God, honest to you guys, it's Kingdom Hearts 2 again. All right, I, that's all I've been playing, Kingdom Hearts 2. Once again, my girlfriend did not let me borrow back the 2DS, so I couldn't sink any more time into Pokemon Omega Ruby. Can't really talk about that anymore. Uh, she honestly forgot, she claims... But the plan is, hopefully tonight, we're going to see each other for dinner, and then I'll borrow it back, and maybe I can sink in a couple of hours while I kind of, you know, flip back and forth between that and Kingdom Hearts 2. But I also understand how girthy of a game Kingdom Hearts 2 can also be, especially since I finally did it. I finally fucking did it. I finally went through the mission that I raged quit when I was a kid. So... I don't know if I've told this story before, but I've actually already played Kingdom Hearts 2 before, except I didn't finish it. 
I got to the and I mentioned this probably when I started it up again recently in in my backlog, and so I I feel like I might have mentioned it in a pod in a podcast episode before, but I mentioned how I started Kingdom Hearts two when I was fifteen when the game first released back in two thousand six, and I got to a mission where you have to kill a thousand heartless, a thousand, and I raged quit. Now, I don't know any other further specific details, but I remember rage quitting and just thinking to myself, fuck this, this is not worth it, this is, I don't know, I don't know what was going through my brain, but as a kid, my attention span was obviously a lot shorter uh, and more sporadic, and, you know, by then there were other PS2 games that were starting to pique my interest, and then the PS3 was right, in fact, this was 2006, the PS3 was out, but uh, it was quite expensive, you know, it infamously was released for like 600 bucks and it was the giant piano thing and it wasn't until 2009 they released the slim and I finally got that so but my attention was starting to kind of jump already into the next generation and hearing what people had to talk about that one that when I got to a mission that I just kept dying over and over at I just dropped it and I had barely any cognitive sense of what was going down on the story (laughs) that yeah I dropped it I dropped it, I rage quit from that mission, and I distinctly not remember quitting it at that mission and never grasping of hold of what proceeded on the story. I didn't watch cutscenes on on YouTube. I mean, that was barely a YouTube then. And I just left it alone, never tackled it again. And for the longest time, it became a running joke that I would tell my friends, I would tell people on my streams, on my online, on social media platforms. It's across the board. What do we say? I never finished Kingdom Hearts 2. And so... Here we are, 16 years later, (laughs) and I finally beat that mission yesterday. Finally beat that mission in five minutes. Yeah, I finally got to it. It was a very surreal experience to have that little counter be like, hey, you need to hit a thousand heartless. There's a bunch of heartless surrounding me in an open playing field like a war. And I'm like, here we go. Up until I realized that tilting the camera up shows Heartless floating up in the air. And these Heartless are specific ones that can launch a laser when you hit triangle and perform the action. And this laser will eviscerate Heartless on the ground about 30 to 40 at a time. So you can kind of get a handle of where I'm going uh, going to here. Five minutes of just performing this action. And that's when I realized that my dumbass 15-year-old, 16 years ago, almost 16 years at least, was simply just trying to kill a Heartless the traditional way and was ignoring the actions that could make the battle go by a lot lot faster. So here I am pressing triangle over and over. Occasionally I would, you know, press uh, X and do the the traditional hack and slash mechanics with Sora. Which, at this point, I've also leveled up because I increased my AP meter, which allows me to equip more abilities. Different moves, different aerial combos, and stuff like that that I didn't do as a kid. You know, back then as a kid, I would still do the traditional one, two, three, one, two, three. Now he does like five or six moves at a time. That, combined with the knowledge of these action um, button prompts with the triangle button... Like I said, the thing was done in five minutes, and I was just I, before I killed the final heartless. I was at nine ninety nine, one heartless left. I just had to pause the game and just think to myself, "What the fuck was wrong? I could have beaten this game years ago, all over a decade ago if I had just paid attention." It, it's it's funny. It's funny how that all works. But we finally got past that mission, and now I'm officially in completely uncharted territory with Kingdom Hearts two. Like from now on. 
the way that the the story unfolds with the cutscenes and the characters going in different directions, that it's all going to be brand new to me. I'm going to be experiencing it for the very first time. So wish me luck. Granted, it's doing that thing, you know, without going into spoilers, let's just say it's doing that thing where it's making you go back to the worlds and finish things off, which I kind of had an inkling was going to happen because I remember reading up on that when I was a kid when I was trying to figure out what was left in the game after that thousand heartless mission that I couldn't beat. And then on top of that, the trophies on the PS5 would tell me that I wasn't done with all the episodes in each world. And I figured, okay, there's got to be something else. And from what I can tell, there's one more episode left on each world. But thankfully, that second episode is much shorter than the first one, almost by half. Like, there's some that only take, like, 30 minutes. Um, So, as of right now, I think I only have, like, two worlds left before there's really nowhere else to go except one really massive world that is kind of revealing itself as you progress in these in this latter part of the story that I'm starting to think that it's probable. It is very probable, but by the end of this week, I will beat Kingdom Hearts 2. Now, of course, you will have to wait until the season uh, the season 3 opener of the Dark Spider cast for you guys to hear my final thoughts. Hopefully by then I'll also get Omega Ruby out of the way and then a couple of other games because after Kingdom Hearts 2, you know, like I said, it, it, the plan was going to be Dying Light 2, but knowing that Horizon 2 is around the, around the corner, hearing that the, the state that Dying Light 2 is in, and the work, and, you know, all this other stuff that's going to busy me up, the niche channel that I have to edit for, I'm like, you know what, I'd rather play shorter games on my backlog, knock those out of the park before Horizon 2 arrives, and then tackle that. So, that's going to be the plan. So when Season 3 opens up, it's going to be Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Thoughts as well as a couple of other things that I will hopefully get out of my backlog promptly. Okay, let's talk about some news. So first one that I thought was pretty interesting because not all, and it's funny because it worked out Perfectly as far as time and as far as these uh, news or, you know, waking up to the fact that Dying Light 2 was not as well received as we would have hoped. And one of the reasons is because of how buggy and glitchy it was. And even at one point during that discussion, I referenced Cyberpunk. Where it's funny because Cyberpunk didn't make its way back into the rotation of news this week. Apparently someone spotted the potential next-gen update. Fucking finally. For Cyberpunk 2077 coming to the Series X and PS5 versions of the game. This is from IGN, the article reading, quote, A next-gen version of Cyberpunk 2077 may be on its way soon as the game has reportedly been spotted for PlayStation 5. As tweeted by the PlayStation Game Size Twitter account, uh, below, right, obviously you guys can see that, but there's a Twitter account called PlayStation Game Size, which regularly posts findings from across the PSN database. A new edition suggests that the long-awaited new gen, new gen, or next gen, or new gen, I guess, new gen versions of the CD Projekt Red RPG may be on the way. The new database entry seemingly indicates a native PS5 version of the game with a brand new piece of cover art, as you can see in the tweet below. Now, obviously, you guys can't see it really fully here, but it kind of looks legit because not only did they find the data entry in the PSN data- database, like they mentioned. But it came with a piece of art that looks legit. Basically, it's similar to the original cover art of Cyberpunk, except the female version of the main character, V, is has her back towards us, as opposed to her facing us with, like, holding the gun in place. She's actually facing in the other direction with her jacket kind of lit up. 
and it's interesting because it this looks like I said legitimate. This doesn't look like a Photoshop. It looks like actually the cover art for what's probably going to be the PS5 and Series X versions of the game. And the funny thing is, is that technically this could line up with what CD Projekt Red had intended for the next gen versions of Cyberpunk because. As we know from last year, they delayed the next-gen updates for both Cyberpunk and Witcher 3. And back then, as the IGN uh, article points out here, the highly anticipated Series X and PS5 upgrades for Cyberpunk were most recently delayed in October when CD Projekt Red notified fans and investors that the game would be pushed back until quarter 1, 2022. That's interesting because, as also mentioned here in the article, has stated in a follow-up tweet, the account has suggested that a next-gen version of the game could come to consoles between late February and early March. That is quite literally quarter one, 2022. However, all as with all leaks and rumors, that's worth taking with a pinch of salt until an un, uh, an official announcement comes around. Because CD Projekt Red has not CDPR, let's call them that, has not officially said anything. So this is all just. Very, very uh, reinforced speculation. I mean, this could work. This could work. Now, part of me is still kind of bummed out that we're getting an update for this first before Witcher 3, only because Witcher 3 seems like it's that. I feel like right now, Cyberpunk, a next-gen update for Cyberpunk coming out right now, it's about time. The Witcher 1 should have been out like last year. All right. In terms of like release, like that core game is already fundamentally made. I don't know why that's being put up but maybe that's how broken and messed up cyberpunk was that they needed that this is how long it took to get cyberpunk in order and now they're barely working on witcher and the, uh, there's a little bit of a bias there because uh witcher 3 i actually have not played yet ever i've never played witcher 3 and i know that's one of the most acclaimed games of all time i've played witcher 2 i have now played one i told uh, i've actually been told by a handful of people to not play one because of how age the gameplay has gotten to the point where it feels like a completely different game than two or three i have played two and i did like it uh, an awful lot but they everybody anonymously says that three is better so i'm looking forward to playing it but now knowing that a next gen update is on the way which frankly may not come until later this year because they did mention that the witcher 3 update is aiming for a late 2022 release I'm still looking forward to it, and I'm still eager for that more so than Cyberpunk because I've already played Cyberpunk. So a next-gen update for Cyberpunk, eh, I don't know. I I feel like that water's already been a little tainted. Um, whereas with Witcher, the fundamental mechanics of that game are still sound. How much better can that game look on a console like PS5? That's what I'm. I got my eyes on. So I'm still focused on that. But that is interesting to see that maybe we'll finally get that next-gen update for. Cyberpunk, whether or not it's going to be worth it for me to dig Cyberpunk back up and pop it into my PS5 or my Series X because I have it for both consoles, uh, believe it or not. I, I, I honestly don't know why, but that's just how it worked out. Thanks to the collector's edition of the PlayStation version and then the limited edition Xbox One X that came with a digital copy of the game. Because of that, I have both. So which one I will play it on, I don't know. But whether I play it on in the first place, there's already so many games both coming out in 2022 and on my backlog that like i said that water may have already been tainted for cyberpunk that I, I think it might just be a little too late by now and you know i think at this point cdpr should really emphasize how much of a cautionary tale 
This really was. So as awesome as that next-gen update might come out at the end of this month or early March, focus on making whatever that new IP is in the future. Because I do humbly believe that they can bring themselves, they can rise out of these ashes. But it, it all, it's, it's all determined by work and commitment to the gamers. Not investors, not stockholders. Fuck them, all right? Focus on the game. And then one last news story before we get to the big one. The big one. Uh, and it's funny that I, I and quite ironic that I'm going to talk about this one, considering that I don't really stream any more on Twitch. It's been actually now a full-blown month, actually, since I stopped uh, streaming. It was January 1st, my last stream. Uh, it was a Saturday. And that was kind of like part of my new um, kind of New Year's resolution to like take an indefinite break from streaming. I sadly, well, I don't know if this is considered sadly, but frankly, I want to say I miss it, but I kind of don't. I I really, really don't. I'm sorry. I just, that's just the nature in me right now that I just don't miss streaming as a whole like like that. And because of that, I'm able to put more effort into, like I said, the new job that I started, the niche channel, the Batman and Spider-Man channel, posting videos twice a week editing that while at the same time working on just a lot of other things that are kind of you know that are like favorable to my creative side of things you know what I mean so I'm hoping that you know more good things will come out of me not streaming because I feel like this new ads incentive program could also be a crux for smaller streamers not so much big ones but it could be a detriment to smaller streamers that don't have the right mind state going into this thing so Twitch recently announced a new ads incentive program, and it, according to this article by TheGamer.com, promises easier money for streamers. So let me read a little bit of this article, and you guys can kind of catch a, uh, a glimpse of what I'm talking about, what I'm referring to. As much as we wish it weren't so, streamers and content creators need money, and the primary way for them to get is through ads. But ads can be complicated. You got to set aside two or three or four minutes every hour to let Twitch run an ad. And then you got to keep track of how much revenue you'll get based on your average viewers. Who's got the time for that? That's why Twitch has announced its new ad incentive program. The program takes the guesswork out of ad revenue by providing content creators with a, with a solid pay floor. So as it reads here. We've created, and this is the Gamer article quoting what Twitch said on their blog. We've created the Ads Incentive Program, or AIP, for two crucial reasons. Reliable and predictable income is important for streamers. And managing ads can be a pain that take time away from creative creating content, writes Twitch in their announcement. We want to free creators from additional management responsibilities so you can focus on doing what you love with the community you love. So... As it kind of unfolds here, basically, and there's a whole rigmarole here of how it works. Basically, what they're saying here is that this is a thing where you, you can actually choose an incentive. So once you get accepted by this thing, which is going to roll out to both partners and affiliates, not every single affiliate is going to get it. For example, I haven't gotten an, a single notification saying that I'm in it. Granted, I don't know if it's because of that break that I just mentioned about, you know, taking a break. Uh, now it's been about a month, so maybe they noticed that I haven't streamed in a month. And they were like, yeah, we're not going to send it to that guy. Which makes sense. Um, 
but some other people will start receiving this incentive, this offer, this um, thing to participate in the ads incentive program. And basically what it is is that you first claim your personalized offer. So if you want to get $500, down, uh, $500 incentive or an $800 incentive or $1,000 or depending, they, they even said it, that these are just examples on their page here. Depending on how big of a following, how many viewers you roll, uh, you pull in per stream, they're going to determine that. So they're going to use all these variables to then dictate how big of an incentive you can get offers on, one, two, or three. So it, it could be like four, six, and eight, or it could be five, eight, and a thousand, like it says here, or it could be seven, nine, and then 1100. It depends. It surely depends case by case. After choosing the offer, then Twitch is going to tell you, okay, so say, for example, you choose the $500 incentive. You need to run two minutes of ads per hour, and you need to stream 40 hours this month. As long as you do that, regardless of whether they watch the ad or not, you will for sure get the $500 incentive by the end of the month or on the next Twitch payout rollout, whatever it's called. So you can see already why that sounds a little, uh, it's the part where it says you need to stream 40 hours this month. 40 hours in a month. Now, let's say, let's take my, what I was averaging, which was, uh, you know, three hour streams, and I was streaming about three to, three to four times a week. So let's go for the maximum, four, four times a week. That's 12 hours a week, because I was streaming four, time, four days out of the week, and uh, about an average of three to three and a half hours each time. That's 12 hours in one week. Each month's got about four weeks. 12 times 4, 48. Okay, so we can factor that in there. But that's for someone who is barely managing to fit that quota, considering that they have other stuff, you know, as far as life. It's doable. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's doable. But, you, you know, unless this guy, you know, this person, whoever's streaming, has no responsibilities, the average person is going to have a family. It's going to have full-time or part-time jobs, so social life, etc. And that's the one of the first incentives. Let's go for the $800 one. You need to run three-minute ads per hour and stream 40 hours a month. And then the other one, $1,000, run four minutes of ads per hour. So there's all these requirements that sound doable as far as time management and all that stuff, but there's also all these other unknowns that could be a hindrance to smaller streamers. Full-time creators, they deal with this, you know, constantly. This is the, the, this is completely old hat for them. It's fine. But for new streamers, there's the unknown of how far they're going to push themselves to show these ads. And what's the use of showing these ads if it could be potentially turning off some viewers? Some viewers might hate this. There, there, there was a time where a couple of uh, streamers, one streamer has actually calmed down on it a little bit, so I'm happy to see that from her. But I remember one streamer in particular, and I'm not going to name who she is, but somebody that I follow on Twitch and I would occasionally watch on, uh, occasionally, and the reason why I say occasionally, is because I would tune into her stream and then literally every like 15 minutes she would run an ad because I'm not subscribed to her channel. She would run an ad and the ads would go on for about a minute or two. And frankly, you know, unless it, this isn't, you know, TV, it's not cable. It's not, you know, I'm not watching a show with a subscription plan that has the ads sprinkled in there like traditional TV. It's a live stream. You know, it's someone playing a video game. I don't need an ad break right, right now. And I know the, that's an incentive to subscribe. 
But it's one thing to just have the ads and how, and I know that ads support the creator, but it's one thing for it to be like every hour. Um, and here it says run two minutes of ads per hour. Okay, cool. But it's another, uh, like how many of these streamers will take it all the way to 11 that they'll run ads every 15, 20 minutes that could turn off a lot of people from catching some of these smaller streamers and opening up their audience. And then on top of that, like I said, I just, I just feel a little iffy about hearing the part where it says you need to stream 40 hours uh, per month. It's like, you know, it, it feels so tied. You know, it has to be much more flexible. It feels, uh, it just sounds like a clock in, clock out sort of scenario. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you need to clock in 40 hours by the end of the month or else you don't get, what if you clock in 39 hours after everything is accumulated because your internet got disconnected and you had to end the stream early? Or life happening, you have to cancel that stream, and so you end up streaming only three hours on uh, three days on one week instead of four times. So you miss like three hours, and or like I said, you you have to end stream early, and you come up to thirty nine hours. Poof! There goes that five hundred dollar incentive for all that work that you did on that month. Poof! It it feels still tied down. So like I said, people who have different lifestyles that don't have a significant other, don't have a family, don't have a job or anything like that. Sure, this is doable for them, but for the average general person, life can happen. And how many of these smaller streamers can, you know, have the possibility of their audience getting mitigated and keep it from growing just because they look at this incentive program and be like, oh, I can do that. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not doable, but at what cost? That's definitely something that a lot of these smaller streamers should definitely think about going forth. Because as it stands right now, it looks like in terms of content creation, that can definitely pay off quite literally as far as monetary value or ad revenue value. It's still YouTube. And that's ideally why I decided to take an indefinite hiatus from streaming and focus on the content creation. Because not only can I feel more comfortable about about not having to be live, not having to keep a personality and still favor what I love to do, which is to edit, content create, you know, put out videos and watch the finished product. And then in turn, in the future, monetize the channel and make a living off of it. That seems to cater more for my style and not for streaming. And I feel like this new Twitch ads incentive program might also put more fuel to that fire. And now the big one. <laughs> Welcome to the acquisition wars. Something that a lot of people expected, and quite a few of them were actually dreading and fearing because even I'm thinking to myself, is this really where the game industry is just going to be doing? Buying up companies. Oh, I got this. Well, I got this. Well, I got this. Okay. Meanwhile, gamers are over here thinking, where are the games? You know, show us the Carfax. Where's the beef? But if you guys haven't already heard from last week, we one of the biggest pieces of news that was making the the rounds of the gaming industry, my apologies, I just bumped the mic, uh, was uh, that Activision Blizzard was bought out by Microsoft. Well, it looks like Sony finally made their move. And you cannot sit there and tell me that this was not a byproduct of the Microsoft Activision acquisition. Like, there, there, those, there's very little 
incentive to think that this was not a knee-jerk reaction. Sure, it may have been talked about for some time. Approaches have may have been made and whispers have been kind of passed on as far as, you know, what they were thinking about doing. But I think the actual, like, announcement was to kind of, you know, to kind of move some of the chess pieces on the board of the platform wars. Uh, but... I, like I saw an opinion piece not too long ago. I think it was on IGN, where it's or maybe some other um, website where it's like it's not about the console war; it's about the content war. We really are starting to go with content wars versus console wars because it's almost not even about the consoles anymore. Like they're both neck and neck as far as performance and speed. Now it's all about the content and the actual properties that these brands are or these corporations are now acquiring, because now Sony made their move by acquiring or at least being in the process of making a deal to buy Destiny developer Bungie for a whopping 3.6 billion. Now I know that that doesn't really match the 60 almost 69 nice billion dollar deal that Microsoft uh put out there for the acquisition of Activision Blizzard, but of course, it all has to do with the properties that you're getting in return. With Activision Blizzard, you're getting World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, Overwatch, so many and, and various others, various other uh big uh, popular ones, you know, StarCraft, etc. Candy Crush for God's sakes. I know and I'm not even saying that as a joke. Like Candy Crush is huge on mobiles and that's a huge conglomerate in and of itself. Sony's is simply buying out Bungie, whose current property right now is the the biggest one is, of course, Destiny, which is about to get a brand new expansion this month, and a lot of people are looking forward to it. However, of course, the big thing that everybody, that big elephant in the room that a lot of people are, uh, you know, thinking about now is that Bungie actually started out being a very exclusive partner to Microsoft in the form of being the original developer behind the Halo trilogy, the first official definitive trilogy before the creation of 343. So it really is ironic that they started out with Microsoft and now they're jumping over quite literally into Sony's pocket. However, with a couple of caveats, this is the IGN report that then in turn goes on to quote GameIndustry.biz. So that's kind of a journalistic inception, if you will. But as it puts it here in the IGN uh, article, GameIndustry.biz reports the following: the, uh, fo- that following the deal, Bungie will be run as an independent subsidiary of SIE or Sony Interactive Entertainment, and will remain a multi-pl- multi-platform studio with the option to self-publish and reach players where they choose to play. So it sounds, I know again, it sounds like they're picking their words very carefully. To me, what it sounds like is like existing stuff, most especially Destiny, is going to stay multi-plat, which is definitely the right move. Like so many people are indoctrinated into Destiny. I hear right now that for people who stuck with Destiny from the very beginning, whether it be with the original Destiny or at least the vanilla version of Destiny 2 when it was first released, it, it got it's gotten so much support and so much upgrade that it's hardly even the same game, but in a good way. In a way where, like, people who were there from the very beginning are absolutely, absolutely adoring where Destiny 2 is at as far as content, as far as the actual gameplay, the mechanics, the customization, all that stuff. With that said, it's funny that the, the way that this timely uh, news story kind of broke out referencing Destiny because not too long ago, I finally finished watching Skillup's Top 10 Games of 2021 video. Yes, a little behind on that, but I'm catching up. And in that video, he referenced Destiny 2. In fact, he listed Destiny 2, I think, as his number three game, which 
is a little weird because that's an older ongoing game. It's a live service game that most recently or, you know, relatively recently within the past year or so went free to play. And of course, the only the only uh, monetization that's going on within the game is, of course, either cosmetics or the deal paid DLC. So one of which, like I said, is coming out very, very soon. The Witch Queen or something which I can't remember what it's called, but that one a lot of people are looking forward to and beyond that the beyond light expansion is really what cemented destiny 2 as a great mmorpg light that a lot of people are vibing with however in that video he said that as deep and as involved as destiny 2 has gotten new players might be turned off because of how ahead the content has gotten so because of how ahead it is existing players on the xbox platform are you know you'll get a lot of people with pitchforks and torches banging at Sony's door if they were to kind of make Destiny exclusive. So that's why they surrender those rights to self-publish and self-distribute. But I'm pretty sure there's going to be negotiations for Sony to look at Bungie and be like, yeah, if you can, you know, give us a definitive Halo killer of some sense, you know, something that you guys can be imaginative with or whatever, but you can only be found on Sony like you can only find Halo on xbox like that's actually a very thoughtful thing to consider here with the bungie acquisition from sony is like can we finally get because it's been a minute since we've gotten a definitive shooter on playstation it's all about the platforming it's all about the adventure side of things with the uncharted the last of us is the ratchet and clanks you know we they there was one at a point Killzone we, you know Killzone was being touted as the Halo killer for Sony but then Killzone Shadowfall failed to meet those expectations it wasn't a bad game and a lot of people used it the same way that we now use Astro's Playroom to signify how powerful the PlayStation 5 can be Killzone Shadowfall was pretty much a good way to show how great the PlayStation 4 was able to do at generating graphics gameplay physics mechanics etc now looking back at it, you know, it's a little difficult to keep that kind of talk for the game when there's been so much advancement as far as what the PlayStation 4 can generate. I know this is not necessarily everybody's cup of tea as far as a game is concerned, but Last of Us Part 2, in my opinion, is a very definitive example of what the PlayStation 4 can do from a graphical standpoint without ever having to throttle the PlayStation 4 to its, you know, to its plastic melding uh, limits. You know what I'm saying? Like, when I loaded up Last of Us Part Two for the first time back in 2020, this was obviously before the PS5 even came out, and I'm still looking at it going, yeah, you know, say what you want about the story, the gameplay, whatever, but f visually, technically, on a technical level, Last of Us Part Two is very, very difficult to top, and that's because the, the Naughty Dog knew exactly how to optimize the console. For the most part, I mean, I had, a, I think, only, like, one crash. and Outside of that, I didn't have any other technical issues with the game, not even any bugs that actually stood out to me as far as, like, something very abrasive. So, looking back at something like Kills on Shadowfall, it's like, well, you know, obviously, the console can do that, you know? You know what I mean? Like, there was so much advancement there. So, now, thinking of what the SSD and the graphics card and the fidelity inside of the PS5 can generate, what would a developer like Bungie be able to do with a brand-new first-person shooter that is exclusive to Sony. I, obviously, my mind races to the possibilities. I know some people have thought about the possibility of continuing the Killzone franchise with Bungie at the helm as opposed to Guerrilla Games now that Guerrilla Games is busy with Horizon. At the same time, I kind of want to keep... If I was Jim Ryan, I would want to keep the quote-unquote DNA 
of Killzone still within Guerrilla Games. I, I don't know what it is, but giving the property of Killzone to someone uh, to uh, over to Bungie, I would rather Bungie just create a brand new IP, whether it be first person or whether it be a third person adventure or just something else entirely. Just let them create something different. Like I said, I've already seen some people speculate on Twitter and on social media. Killzone, maybe a new Killzone entry, and then some people went further back to go to the Resistance. Now, I believe Insomniac was the one that handled Resistance, and of course Insomniac is now busying themselves up as well, not only because they also got themselves bought by uh, Sony, but they're also really, really busy with Marvel's Spider-Man 2 and Marvel's Wolverine, so there is some legworm, some legworm, leg room. I meant to say work and room at the same time. My apologies. But there is space there for some negotiations between Insomniac and uh, Jim Ryan and PlayStation and all of them to be like, hey, you guys can't... We know that you have a lot on your plate with these superhero games and uh, great expectations. That Resistance property over there that you guys have the rights to, how about we buy those back from you, give them over to Bungie, and let them do something? I would say between the two, let them have resistance. But if not, then I am more so uh, on the preferred side of giving them a brand new property. Just you know, start from scratch with your services, with your engines, and create something brand new. Uh, actually, and it's funny that I mentioned that because as we continue along this IGN article, it quotes, Bungie is best known as the creators of Halo, like I mentioned, but since becoming an independent studio, have focused their efforts on Destiny, a live-service FPS RPG where players can explore the galaxy as Guardians of Light. The company is also working on a new IP. Can that new IP be PlayStation exclusive now? Uh, It doesn't look like they're potentially ruling that out but as it says here we've had a strong partnership with Bungie since the inception of the Destiny franchise and I couldn't be more thrilled to officially welcome the studio to the PlayStation family says SIE President CEO Jim Ryan as I mentioned um, and it, it, it is it is true because for the longest time I would always mention even back to I think original Destiny when the first Destiny first came out there would always be exclusive DLC or exclusive content only found on PlayStation you couldn't find it on Xbox. There would always be that sticker on the cellophane saying, hey, there's a code inside to get an extra mission exclusively for for PlayStation. And I'll think to myself, like, yeah, that's definitely something um, that could signify a very cozy relationship with that platform, similar to how uh, sometimes you would find Xbox properties on Switch, such as Cuphead. And now it, it's sounding like, you know, Xbox is making moves in and of themselves. I don't know about anything that has to do with Nintendo because recently Nintendo even themselves said that they're not interested in any acquisitions, which everybody saw coming from a mile away because it's Nintendo. Nintendo be Nintendo. Uh, in the official PlayStation blog post, as it reads here, Ryan begins by confirming Bungie's independence. I want to be very clear, says Ryan, to the community that Bungie will remain an independent and multi-platform studio and publisher. Uh, that will sit alongside the PlayStation Studios organization, so you could expect that logo, that customizes, uh, customized uh, PlayStation Studios logo at the front of some of their games from here on out, especially the ones that are exclusive to PlayStation. We'll also gain a- PlayStation Studios will also gain access to Bungie's proprietary tools, which can be used for PlayStation Studios teams, according to the blog. So, as I mentioned before, those engines and, and things like that, they could be used for other studios. Maybe Insomniac could... I don't want to say freelance, but kind of outsource some workers, you know, create new jobs to go work at the 
uh, Bungie Studios to then maybe resurrect uh, Resistance or Killzone, uh, or maybe Guerrilla Games could do that for Killzone, uh, the Killzone sequel, the Killzone franchise. Who knows? In a separate blog post, Bungie detailed with what the acquisition means for the company, calling SIE quote a partner who unconditionally supports us all in all in us in all we are um, my apologies and who wants to accelerate our vision to create generation spanning entertainment all while preserving the creative independence independent that beats in Bungie's heart some way with words there towards the towards the end Bungie reaffirms that it retains its ability to independently publish and develop games even after acquisition and that it's committed to supporting games communities where they choose to play this is Sony's sixth acquisition since 2021, though most of its studio acquisitions have been studios with long histories with PlayStation, such as Bluepoint and Mark, or support teams in specialized studios like Nexus and Valkyrie Entertainment. While Destiny 2 has been heavily promoted alongside PlayStation, like I mentioned with those stickers and those pre-order and console-exclusive incentives, with exclusive bonuses for players in the system, Bungie's history is intertwined with across PlayStation, Xbox, and PC, and the company hopes to remain multi-platform after that deal. Funny enough, nothing on Nintendo, but of course we've come to expect that. So, yeah, this is a big, a uh, big piece of news, and it's funny because not too long ago, someone—I can't remember who it was specifically—but someone even said, "You ain't seen nothing yet." I'm paraphrasing here, but they said, "You ain't seen nothing yet," and this is what's after the Xbox and Activision Blizzard acquisition. So. Okay, we got Sony, and Nintendo did make it clear that they don't want to acquire anything else. And and ever since then, Sony, it, behind closed doors, mentioned to an interviewer that, yeah, we there are other companies that we're talking to right now. So expect other things to come forth. I think Jeff Keighley even tweeted saying that there, he's heard from people within the industry, people that work inside behind closed doors at the companies and journal, journalists and all those people around the rumor mill saying that more acquisitions are coming from both of these big conglomerates, Xbox and PlayStation. And that's cool and all. And, you know, hopefully the only thing I can really extrapolate from this is that please let it at least incentivize and fire up the creative passions behind new projects. You know, hopefully this is fuel for fire. That is creativity, brand new properties, brand new games, not just boasting and puff these two companies boasting and puffing their chests saying look what i bought look what i bought look what i bought because everybody the, the one word that is circling a lot, uh, around a lot of people's heads that is scaring them and rightfully so is the word monopoly cuz then you're going to have all of these companies being owned by all these big corporations and you know who's going to remain independent of course it's a very um apocalyptic sort of sort of way of thinking because it is kind of like saying it's kind of like the video game industry equivalent of someone on the corner saying jesus is coming back repent it's like you know yeah yeah it could happen but you know like we have to live for today we have to game for today so on the one hand yeah i can see how scary this can be especially for smaller studios who are trying to make it big out there and and yet all the eyes are now on these big uh, corporations and, and these big names and what they're going to do next. And, and, you know, there's so many gray areas for what this kind of poses. But at the same time, you know, all that we can really do right now is just wait and see what happens. Wait and see what happens. Because some of these acquisitions take time to ferment, take time to actually 
uh, flourish. Uh, as we as I mentioned last week, the Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft is not going to really be set in stone until I think they said summer 2023 or something like that. I think it's June 2023. Uh, I didn't see any specifics here on the article or in any of my research of when the Sony and Bungie acquisitions are actually going to come to a close. But it's probably going to take some time of negotiations, the final price points. You know, keep in mind that all these prices, all these billions that are being mentioned, are rough estimates. There's never been an exact amount until, of course, the people are signing on the dotted line. So, yeah, this is a big power play move. It's funny because when I I talked to my buddy Service Assassin, aka Greg, uh, about the Microsoft buyout of Activision, the first thing that he said to me was, "Well, Sony, better hurry up." And it looks like they hurried up. So now, like I said, it's just a matter of waiting to see and, and spectate as to whether or not this is just, again, companies flexing to each other. Or if we're actually going to get amazing content and amazing games from these two big power players. Because this is only going to provide uh, you know, f- financial gain, financial stability, and workforce uh, stability towards these companies to then put out better and better games. Hopefully this, while at, at the same time addressing uh, issues in the workplace as far as crunch time, as, well, as far as work ethics, and of course, you know, anything that has to do with whatever the fuck was going on over there at Activision, address that, fix that, and like I said, hopefully fuel creativity Man, only us gamers can definitely win from that. But of course, that has yet to be you know, seen. And all we can do right now is just patiently wait. And with that, I close out the finale for Season 2. I appreciate you guys for listening here all the way to the very end. Of course, you can always stay in touch with me via the links in the description of this podcast. Whichever sole platform you choose to listen on Spotify. If you are still here, if you haven't already quit Spotify based on the recent things that I've been hearing about Spotify. If you are, in fact, still here, I appreciate you. If not, catch me on Google Podcasts, on uh, other couple of other podcast feeds and RSS feeds. Uh, of course, you can always find me definitively on anchor.fm, anchor.fm slash David Ortega 56, I believe, or just search me up Dark Spider David podcast or the Dark Spider cast. But if you are already here and you guys want to stay in touch, like I mentioned before, Twitter, Instagram, the website and the YouTube channel page links are could be found in the description. Of course, being the season finale, quote-unquote, of the, the second season of the Dark Spider cast means that I'm going to be off the gr- the podcasting grid for a week. So I will be returning with the season three opener in about two weeks-ish, roughly estimate. And here's to hoping that nothing as huge as Microsoft buying Activision or Sony buying Bungie happens in the next week. But if it does, you can rest assured that I'm going to be talking about it on that first episode for season three of the dark spider cast in the meantime guys stay humble and i'll see you then take care